From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Richard Perrins, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. This week, we start off by examining why certain Syracuse University students decided to transfer schools. They reveal how issues like the COVID-19 pandemic, the prevalence of bias incidents, the quality of education, and the cost of attendance affected their decisions to transfer. In other news, we look at SU's decision to adopt a test-optional admissions policy through the 2022-23 academic year. Finally, I'm going to give a trigger warning here for references to sexual assault as we take a look at Callisto, which is an online support and resource program for survivors of sexual assault. I think two or three of the sources I interviewed, they are in the same class as I do. So I pretty much know them for like one or two years, but I know they got transferred out during the past two years. But I didn't really ask them before, like, okay, what's your reason for transferring out? And like, what part of SU you didn't like that very much? So I decided to do this story as like we heard about students transfer in Syracuse U every year. But we hardly heard those stories. I mean, just like students who transferred out. My name's Francis B. Tan, and I'm assistant news copy editor for Daily Orange. Let's go into some of the reasons that some of these students said they have to leave. So the first one is hate crimes and bias-related incidents. I'd love you to go into a little more depth about what some students said about that. Yeah, so as I said, a lot of the sources I've interviewed, they're in the same class as I do. So I'm in the class of 2019, which means we endured the first not against you protest because of the graffiti on campus, pretty much our first semester while at SU. So for a lot of students, it's really not much a pleasant experience to experience all that, I mean, in your first semester. Some of them are international students, so it means their first semester, first time literally been in the United States. So, but for everyone, I mean, it's not any experience they would like they would expect it before they came to college. So one of my sources told me she's from Beijing, China, and she lived in Haven Hall her first year on campus. There's graffiti in the bathrooms in Haven Hall during that year, and she heard a lot of things that makes her feel unsafe. It really felt dangerous around the time. With gunshot incidents outside of campus, I just couldn't focus on my studies anymore back then. And after all the chaos, there came the pandemic. So I went back home in China in March. So during that point, she just doesn't feel safe living on campus anymore. So she decided to take a gap year after the SU sent us back home because of the pandemic. And after the gap year, she just decided she didn't want to come back to SU anymore. So she decided to transfer out to UK. So she's in Manchester, University of Manchester in UK right now. Why did she decide to go to the University of Manchester? Was there a reason? that she chose that spot in particular? She told me she 
didn't really decide to transfer to another country until pretty recently. So I th I think she mentioned she just started the transfer application process pretty much in May or April this year. So one of the reasons is definitely she as an international student want to see more of this world, want to go to more places, more countries to experience that kind of different culture between the different nations. Because for certainly the United Kingdom and the United States are, there's a lot of different culture she wants to experience. And there's a lot of things she wants to learn from the beginning. She was in VPA studying film at SU. So she, she's now in England and want to study more about like related stuff in another country. But she did tell me the education she received in SU and in England is pretty much different in terms of specific like fields and techniques in terms of film. Because the UK is more focused on hardcore theater or like traditional, that kind of stuff. So you mentioned some of the bias incidents that kind of pushed away some students. But there was also a sense of superficiality in the way that SU dealt with some of those bias incidents. Could you speak a little about how some students reacted to that? Yeah, one of my sources, his name is Shisha Yalamani. He's now in New York University studying film. He's also a film student. And he told me he's not really comfortable to take some classes at SU, which he said is kind of superficial. There's a sense of fake activism in some of the classes he has taken at SU. For example, the same 100 classes before the Nadagan SU protest. He said it's pretty much superficial and he quote, it will be good for people who don't understand how to not be an asshole. But it just lacked a lot of nuances in topics like stereotypes and discrimination. Especially, that's one part as CASIM 100 was a required class for every first year student at SU, but specifically in some of his film classes. So in his department, he said there's a kind of tendency to bring more diverse people with different backgrounds, which he said is totally good thing, he's all for it. But it's just like sometimes the department seems to value that more than the real quality of the film they produced. So that's one thing he has mentioned, which he felt really disappointed. Like, listen, I'm all for diversity. I really am. I want to I bring in a bunch of different people that will show different aspects of life and, and, the, and the world. That's amazing. But do not prioritize that over actual quality work that will teach filmmakers how to be better. You know what I mean? That's never, that's never going to help anybody. It's just not, okay? He thinks uh, both of the diversity and the quality of the films are both important and we should not, I mean, prioritize one thing over the other. I want to stick with this, talking about the film program for a moment. That student, Yelamele, and another one who study film production at SU and at other colleges said that the education wasn't as focused on technical skills as they would have liked. Is that correct? How, how would they have liked that to change? Yeah, so both of them, they said their education they received at VPA, which is in SU. So it's kind of more focused on the concepts or like a little bit more like something pretty superficial during the first year. Maybe that's just the first year thing they said. 
but they just feel a little bit unsatisfied because like they would want more classes or experiences focusing on like how to produce a film, how to do the film itself or the technical skills that could prepare them for their future career. So which they said, like, for example, Yelamani, he's in NYU right now. And according to him, the classes at NYU, like pretty much satisfied him during the first semester around there. Cause like it taught him a lot of stuff, how to deal with specific problems in film shooting and how to produce his own film. He got a lot of like practical skills in his own field which they didn't have pretty much that kind of experience while at SU. So there's another student who transferred to DePaul University in Chicago. And he said an actual film program during his time at VPA was a little bit more about independent film based, a little bit less about the business aspect, which like they both mentioned they're more like a business person. They're not really like interested in some more like abstract or theoretical aspects of film and Yelamelli himself said like he's one of those filmmakers that actually likes Marvel movies they're just want more substantial education like how to deal with their film how to produce a film rather than like abstract concepts like out of thin air so I've noticed a trend in some of the colleges that some of these students chose they're a lot cheaper and a lot more cost effective maybe for the things they want to pursue. So how would you say financial burden has kind of pushed these students towards transferring away from Syracuse? Financial cost of SEO is definitely one of the most expensive one like university in the United States or even around the world, I would say. So one of the sources I've interviewed, he grew up in the UK, but he's a United States citizen. And he's now in University of Manchester. Right now, he's doing his one of volunteer project in Africa. So he told me he transferred out of SU as soon as he finished the first semester in 2019. So the cost of tuition at SU really is really not something he could like just afford without any, I mean, hesitance. For example, he mentioned the meal plan at SU, which we did a similar story in the past few weeks. So one single meal swipe at SU dining halls comes like $20 per swipe. And he said it hit him like a brick when he actually did the calculation. So he mentioned in the UK, he probably just spent like 60 pounds, maybe 80 or $90 every week on food. But in the United States, he's basically spending that money in a day and a half. So he said in a quote, he just cannot justify it. So that's the living expense. And they also mentioned tuition. So most of the universities they transfer to, I, I'm not pretty sure about NYU, but pretty much all, most of the universities they chose to transfer to are more cheaper, I guess, in sense of like uh, tuition and room and board. So in the UK, I guess, they also mentioned the process of getting student loan. Uh, how does that process compare to the United States? And in the UK, it's definitely easier to get a student loan and less of a pressure 
to like pay back the loan companies as soon as you graduate from college. And Carlo also mentioned the process he tried to get financial aid from SU, which he said it's not any pleasant experience because he was just confused about a lot of process that he needs to follow. And he didn't think he got enough instructions or introductions about the financial aid process here at SU. Francis is an assistant copy editor for The Daily Orange. You can read more about his article on The Daily Orange website. Thank you, Francis, for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. So in your story, you spoke about a new test optional admissions policy through the 2022 to 23 school year. So is this test optional policy new? Have they had it in years past? What makes this different? So they put it into place, I believe last year. They put it into place because of COVID, because it was hard for students to take the SAT and ACT. So I think they just wanted to put it in place to make it easier for kids to like complete their application and do it a little bit more stress-free. So it's not a new policy, but it's like, I guess, a fairly recent one. Hi, I'm Chantel. I'm the news assistant digital editor. So you spoke to freshmen at Syracuse that had to navigate the college system with test optional scores. So what did they say about it? I talked to one freshman and the whole new policy didn't really affect her because she was planning on submitting her scores when she was applying. She was pretty comfortable with her score and she thought that it would help her instead of hurt her when she was applying. So it wasn't anything too different for her for her application process. She didn't get a lot of guidance from her high school on what to do when applying, so she kind of just navigated it on her own. But yeah, she didn't seem too stressed out about it than I guess any other person applying any other year would be. So some students supported the test optional policy, obviously. What kind of reasons did they give to say that it creates like a more fair and equitable environment for applying to schools? Yeah, so I talked to two girls who are current seniors in high school. They come from a fairly like wealthy area and they were very self-aware of the fact that this is where they came from and the resources that they had when applying and studying for the SAT and ACT and they recognize that a lot of other students don't have the same resources and they can't spend all these monies on SAT prep courses or tutors and can't get the same scores that students who can afford those resources would get. So they supported the policy because they think it created an even playing field for all applicants. That was the common opinion I was getting from the students I was talking to. Could you explain the concept of holistic review and why is that more representative of what a student brings to a college than standardized test scores, at least from the perspective of some of the students you talked to? For holistic review, they kind of take into account all different aspects of an application equally. They all have equal weight. Uh, So like your GPA, your letters of recommendation, your extracurriculars, your essays all have an equal weight for your admission. So yeah, so I think that the students who I talked to found that to be a better system for them. And because they just thought it was more fair, they spent all this time in their extracurriculars on their grades and they didn't want their admission to be weighed and based solely on just like one test they took one day during their high school career. So while some students shared that point of view, that it's a benefit for schools to get rid of or enhance the test optional policy, some said that if they didn't submit standardized test scores, they were worried that that might reflect negatively on them. 
Could you explain that point of view? What kind of students felt this way? One of the students I talked to shared this sentiment and she just heard, I guess, from professionals in the college admissions process, like counselors and whatnot. And on college tours, she heard this also, that the admissions office would look poorly on students who didn't submit their test scores. And like, this could be a rumor, this could not be true, but this is like things that high school students are hearing and it's playing a role in their decision to submit their scores or not. I think that a lot of the universities have to have a clear message on what their stance is or else more high school students will share, will keep like sharing this idea and will view scores in like this way. Is Syracuse alone in adopting this policy or is it more of a direction that a lot of schools are going in? Right now, 55% of schools in the country, I believe, are adopting this policy. And Syracuse is definitely not alone. A lot more schools are going in this direction. So I, I don't know what will happen after we learn to live with COVID and it just becomes part of our everyday lives. If universities will go back to their old systems or not. But for now, a majority of schools are shifting in this like test optional idea and realm. Chantel is an assistant news digital editor for The Daily Orange. You can read more about her article on The Daily Orange website. Thanks, Chantel, for your time. So Callisto is a nonprofit organization that works to provide support resources for survivors of college sexual assault. And for this story, I really focused on the campus chapter that is present here at Syracuse University. My name is Abby Presson. I'm one of the assistant culture editors at The Daily Orange. So in your story, you mentioned some of the major players for Callisto on SU's campus. You referenced Jess Ladd, Justine Hastings, and Abigail Tick. How have these people contributed to the development of the program? So Justine Hastings was our essay president here last year. And what she really did was when she was running essay, when she was taking that leadership position on campus, she wanted to bring Callisto to Syracuse to help get that resource available for students and survivors. So when she was doing that, she reached out to Abigail Tick because she knew of Abigail's past involvement with various organizations like SASE and with Planned Parenthood here in Syracuse. And so they worked together to bring that to campus. And now Abigail is still working as the campus champion for Callisto. In your story, you mentioned the terms red zone and double red zone. Could you explain what that means in the lens of sexual assault allegations and what this means for Callisto's mission? So the red zone is what a lot of people who work with sexual assault and survivors of sexual assault use to refer to the time in a college year between the start of the fall semester and the start of the Thanksgiving break. And in that period of time, statistically speaking, over 50% of campus sexual assault incidents occur. That's where that name kind of came from. It's that hot zone of when we're seeing that highest level of, unfortunately, those sexual assault incidents. And then the double red zone is a term that has become more of a new thing. The first time I actually heard of it was when I was working on doing this story and when I was interviewing some of these sources. And that is being reused to refer to the red zone this year. Because this year, since a lot of sophomores are having their first college experiences and their first exposures to certain aspects of college life due to COVID and due to remote learning and online learning last year, they essentially have two years worth of students having these first year experiences. 
and that grappling with the newness of some of these college experiences is one of the contributing factors to the red zone. So there have been campus-wide conversations at Syracuse in the last few months and even the last few years about the inefficiencies in reporting incidents of sexual assault. Most recently this semester, there have been student protests about sexual assault allegations, as well as well-covered concerns about Title IX, which guides the policy of SU and other schools about discrimination and sexual assault. How does Callisto try to alleviate this sense of distrust that students and victims have about the system? So the people who work running Callisto and Abigail taking her role as the campus champion for Callisto have recognized that one of the reasons it can be difficult for survivors to navigate the process of what to do after an, an incident of sexual assault has occurred is because there isn't always that trusting relationship between them and the university, uh, speaking broadly, or that trust that something will get done about it. So the way Abigail Tick described Callisto to me was as a resource outside of the normal system. So it's not trying to take the place of anything that's currently available for survivors, like the Title IX process, but it works outside of that. So all of Callisto's resources were designed to be able to work both in conjunction with and separately from existing processes to provide an additional extra resource. So in your story, you also mentioned the advocacy and education group, Students Advocating Sexual Safety and Empowerment. They were involved with the protest we covered recently about sexual rights that started at Planned Parenthood, which we discussed in the last podcast. How are they involved with Callisto and what kind of goal do they have on campus with working with this? So SASE, the organization just mentioned, they have some experience working with these kinds of issues. They're a big advocacy group, as you mentioned, on campus for sexual safety and, sex and um, empowerment in that way. And Abigail Tick had been involved with them prior to getting involved with Callisto. So that was one of those prior experiences that led Justine Hastings to ask her to get involved. And so when Callisto was first coming to campus, Abigail Tick worked with them as well to get that involved. What resources does Callisto offer its users and why are they important for these kinds of people? So Callisto offers three different primary resources. So one of the things they offer, which seems to be their, their the thing that was emphasized to me the most during the writing of this article is their matching program. So when a student is a survivor of a sexual assault incident on campus, they can input some basic information about the person who did it and additionally some identifiers and then that goes into the system where if any of this gets input by another student it can connect those two incidents because a high number of these campus sexual assault incidents are done by repeat perpetrators so that's a tool to help connect that and then if a match is identified the students who input that information are put in touch with legal options counselors who are free resources from Callisto to help them decide what to do next. Callisto off also offers online secure logging software where survivors can input information about incidents that have occurred to them if they want to just write it down so that later they will have that option if they so choose to use that record to move forward with charges or with any kind of action against the person who did it. And additionally, they have just general legal counseling and resources for both survivors and for people trying to support survivors. 
And then my last question here is, what is the kind of reach that Callisto has across the country? How big is their audience that they're trying to serve? So they have chapters on 17 college campuses across the country. One of them is Syracuse. And so this gives them a pretty broad reach because they have a campus champion to offer this resource to people on every one of those 17 campuses. But additionally, so that's about 250,000 students at this time. But when I was speaking with some members of the Callisto community, they were saying that they have a goal of reaching half a million students. So expanding to additional campuses by the end of this year. Abby Presson is an assistant culture editor at The Daily Orange. You can read more about her story on The Daily Orange website. Thank you, Abby, for your time. Thank you to Francis, Chantal, and Abby for coming on this week's episode. More special thank yous go to our executive producer, Adam Garrity, our music producer, Adam Wolf, podcast producers, Callie Delilah, and Kylie Halehi, and our editor and producer, Mariah Holmston. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you here again next week.